now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, January 10th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, ever wonder why it's deputies in government who do the actual work? Plus, Congress gets options on how to improve oversight of something nearly every agency does. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Postal Service has one of the most diverse workforces in the United States, and it's growing more diverse. But the Government Accountability Office finds that diversity doesn't find its way into USPS leadership ranks. The report also highlights some pay gaps within USPS management. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. And so it sounds like the Postal Service has a challenge that is kind of across the government. This is a very common problem across government, as you mentioned, and this is something that the GAO has looked at across government. I think the one that comes to mind is the State Department, and this is a problem that they have been looking at for decades now. USPS, of course, is bringing in new hires every single day. And credit where credit is due, the USPS, one of the most diverse employers in the country, and the GAO is looking at some of these barriers to some higher up management level positions. What they found in this report is that a disproportionate number of executive positions were held by employees who are white versus employees who are people of color. And to look at this, you know, a little more specifically, the GAO found that Black and Asian employees at USPS were 40 to 50 percent less likely to be promoted to middle manager roles than their white peers, and that Hispanic or Latino employees were 28 percent less likely to be promoted to those same middle manager roles. I will point out, Tom, that all of the trends here don't break in the same direction because GAO also found that Black and Asian managers were almost twice as likely as their white counterparts to be promoted to the executive level positions, so the highest of the high tier of USPS. And I spoke with David Maroney. He's the acting director of GAO's physical infrastructure team. And he says that these results show that USPS has been making a really concerted effort to get a more diverse pool of people into its highest ranks. Bottom line, Postal Service has a diverse workforce, an increasingly diverse workforce. And they have, I want to give them credit, they have taken a number of actions and follow a number of leading practices to improve the diversity of their workforce. But really, there are still opportunities for them to strengthen their efforts. We're hopeful they'll be open to that independent feedback and take action to improve their own efforts. And how diverse, Jory, is the USPS total workforce in the first place? The numbers here are pretty eye-opening. About 46% of USPS employees are women, so there's pretty close to gender parity there. USPS employs more than 70,000 veterans and more than 32,000 employees with disabilities. So no matter how you look at it, given the size of USPS as an employer, they're making some real strides in the diversity front. We heard from Maroney on on recognizing that point and saying that they are doing those first steps uh, pretty well as far as getting a diverse pool in. You need a diverse pool at all levels to increase in the organization. And USPS certainly has a diverse workforce. Our numbers reflect that in the report, and increasingly so. So the direction is good. It's more about how can they continue to improve, uh, especially at the executive level. All right. And also in that report was the idea of pay disparities at the upper ranks. And what's going on there? 
Right. Yeah. So GAO found that as well as these uh, challenges with some of these demographics being promoted, that there were also some pay gaps between uh, these different racial and ethnic groups, as well as women and employees with disabilities. They found anywhere from a one to seven percent pay gap uh, compared to colleagues who were white or non-disabled or their counterparts in those regards. One really important example to point out here, GAO found that if it controlled for variables like tenure, black middle managers earned about 5% less than their white middle manager colleagues, and that translates to about $3.85 less per hour. That's an important point, really. You have to control for those variables because if people were hired at different times and so forth, then the averages don't mean anything. But if you control for them, then you've, you've found something, I guess. And so what does the Postal Service tell GAO themselves? What was their kind of take on all of this? Well, GAO heard from frontline USPS supervisors and managers themselves. They uh, conducted a survey of this population and they got some interesting feedback from them about a third of respondents to this GAO survey said that they either agreed or strongly agreed that they were treated unfairly in USPS promotions. And about 45% of them said that they observed co-workers being treated unfairly in that promotion process. Now, that's, of course, their perspective on things. But when asked what was unfair about their promotion process or someone else's, they cited race and ethnicity as well as gender as factors that they believe led to that unequal treatment. And what is the Postal Service's official reaction to that GAO report? Because these are sensitive issues these days. Of course, yeah. The Postal Service does point out that it is a uh, diverse employer. And we, we looked at the statistics on this already. Uh, One thing that GAO didn't highlight that USPS wanted to make sure was apparent is that they have been promoting American Indian, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian, and other Pacific Islander employees to frontline supervisor positions at comparable rates to their white colleagues. Some other things that are been in the works is that USPS created an executive diversity council back in 2021. And as we mentioned at the top here, Tom, USPS has been making an effort to make sure that at its executive ranks, uh, that it is a diverse pool of people that are entering those top level positions. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, more from GAO. Congress gets options on how to improve oversight of something nearly every agency does. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Rulemaking. The government does lots and lots of it. But because the power to regulate is the power to destroy, rulemaking has rules. And like all agency activities, it requires congressional oversight. The Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress asked the Government Accountability Office for ideas on how to improve rulemaking oversight. With what it came up with, the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues joins me now, Yvonne Jones. Ms. Jones, good to have you back. Thank you. Good morning. I'm accurate in saying that what they asked is not for you to look at rulemaking, but to look at oversight of rulemaking. That's correct. All right. And what prompted this? This committee was looking at a lot of areas of congressional operation. That's correct. But the committee was looking at ways to strengthen the legislative branch, including its responsibility to pass and oversee laws. So the committee asked GAO to identify how increased legal and regulatory resources could strengthen the legislative branch. That's how we got this request from them. 
So legal and regulatory, those are related, but not really the same thing. That's correct. The regulatory relates to, of course, all the the rules that are passed in order to implement the laws that the legislature passes. Legal, of course, relates to statutes and other kinds of authorities, which are passed by the Congress. So they are often, shall I say, complementary, but they are clearly not the same. Sure. And so what was the concern of the committee that Congress just doesn't have enough visibility into agency rulemaking? Because this was a bipartisan committee, so it wasn't a matter of saying a particular rule we disagree with or agree with, Mm -hmm. but more what, trying to just get understanding of what's going on in the agencies? Well, there was that, but I think overall the committee mentioned that they were concerned that the Congress was doing less oversight for a number of reasons. Some some of it was because the committees have fewer staff or they have fewer staff with a deep understanding of the policy issues. Their budgets for committees have been cut. And I think that it would be fair to say that they thought that in terms of a balance of oversight or affecting regulations between the Congress and the executive branch, that the executive branch perhaps has more power, more influence now than it had years ago. Yeah, that's an important observation. The congressional staff is really the body of knowledge that is standing in Congress. And I think people misunderstand that sometimes. They think each member of Congress is an expert in all of these areas. And, you know, they're politicians and they a lot of them do know a lot about these things. But there's a lot of knowledge embodied in staff that tends to be a little bit more stable when the members come and go. So what then did you come up with as ways perhaps to help Congress so that it understands what's going on and can oversee rulemaking? Well, what we understood was from the members in the committee staff is that they wanted us to look at options or potentially increasing Congress's role into both oversight and legal issues concerning policies and programs. And they mentioned that they would like us to look into options and trade-offs and potentially creating two new offices, an office of regulatory review and an office of legal counsel. So that's what we did. We reviewed literature and we talked to experts and developed a list of considerations that the Congress could take into account. We did offer a number of options on how these offices might be created, structured, you know, how they might operate. All right. We're speaking with Yvonne Jones. She's Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And let's talk about that first one, the Office of, say, Regulatory Affairs. There is Mm -hmm. a similar office in the White House, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, which reviews major rules that come from agencies. So was the recommendation that Congress have something similar, a body almost like a mini GAO focused on Mm -hmm. rules that are major, at least, coming out of the agencies? Okay, so this is perhaps a subtlety, but we did not make recommendations. We offered options Options. and trade-offs because it is our view that when you're looking at the structure of Congress, it is Congress itself that determines its structure and how it is going to be governed. But we did say that one thing that Congress could do is to create new offices, and we did compare a potential Office of Regulatory Review with OIRA. We did not say that the new office should replace OIRA, but we did For example, talk about considerations, which is how many staff an office would have, 
what the budget would be. We offered a comparison between the staff and budget of OIRA. And we did talk about considerations like duplication and overlap in this particular situation. If Congress chose to create the office, that could happen. We also talked about the cost of creating new offices. Right. Good point. Yes. Options for them to consider, but not recommendations. And dueling OIRAs, I guess, could be seen as duplication in one sense. But on the other hand, if you have a majority of one party in Congress and a different party in the White House, and that's happened from time to time, then you would have checks and balances OIRA rather than competing OIRA could be an option. That's correct. And on the legal counsel side, what do you envision such an option could do there? Because Congress writes the laws. And so... Mm -hmm. We talked about there, too, that, for example, you could create a new office of legal counsel that might perhaps represent both chambers, or you might create an office for each chamber, or you might modify, for example existing offices like the Congressional Budget Office or the Research Office of the Congressional Review Service. But there are times when the Congress feels that it needs to have its view of the law represented, like, for example, in court proceedings. So, for example, an Office of Legal Counsel could present its view. It could, in fact, defend the Congress, a committee, committee chairs or ranking members or committee members, if need be. It could play the role of the advocate of Congress, for example, before the Supreme Court or other levels of the court. So there are any number of things that that kind of an office could do to help the Congress make sure that its view of appropriate legal actions is presented. Right, because sometimes the courts simply take the plain language of a law. And because people and human beings write laws, sometimes the language is not necessarily consonant with the intent. And this comes up a lot in many cases. So could this Office of Legal Counsel, or whatever it ends up being called, if, should Congress do it, maybe somehow express in prose what the intent was, as opposed to what the language might have been in court proceedings? Well, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but Me uh, conceptually speaking, I think that that is one of many things that such an office could potentially do. All right. And now the committee itself disbanded, and now there's different elements of Congress that are looking at modernization, hopefully taking up some of its recommendations. So the report, where does it go now? Who's looking at it? What have you heard, if anything, from members? Okay. Well, we have briefed members of Congress and we have other briefings scheduled, but what would happen now is that Congress would deliberate on the options that we indicated. So, for example, we've talked a bit about the creation of a new office, but for example, we options included revising existing processes like adding expiration dates or sunset dates like for rules. And then a third option we had was to alter oversight functions, such as adding requirements for agencies to conduct their review. So the Congress will review the options that we have offered. In the meantime, while Congress decides what it wants to do, our report has been issued and we included with the report an Excel table which includes all of the options for an Office of Regulatory Review so a person could 
isolate options, sort them in a number of different ways and look at other issues like duplication cost overlap. We also, not in an Excel table, but in the report, we presented a number of potential options for the creation of an Office of Legal Counsel. So this information is available to everyone, to the public as well as to the Congress. Sort of like congressional Tetris, it seems like you've given them to shift and move (laughs) those cells around. Well, we hope that it won't take as long for people to understand it and master it. But yes, if you wish. (laughs) And, And by the way, was one of the options perhaps that GAO could take on some of these functions? I mean, GAO does something that seems unrelated to the core mission, which is hearing and deciding on contract protests. You know, GAO does that. Could GAO be the OIRA location? Was that one of the options? Well, we were not that specific. We did mention that there were perhaps functions that GAO could take on. But as I said earlier, not wishing to make a recommendation, we talked more conceptually about what offices could do and then what the considerations would be in terms of trade-offs. Well, it's certainly one of the most interesting publications from GAO, in my opinion, coming recently. So (laughs) I thank you for joining us. Yvonne Jones is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Good to have you back. Thank you so much for inviting me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Make the Federal Drive part of your rules. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when you leave service and national security, you just can't go to work anywhere. But first, ever wonder why it's the deputies in government who do the actual work? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In a long federal career, my next guest has typified people who get things done. A former Marine, she worked at the old U.S. Customs Service, later at U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Now she's the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Homeland Security Department. And she's also a recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Elizabeth Capello joins me now. Ms. Capello, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. Thank you so much. And you really have had a long career And information technology can be a frustrating place where a lot of projects go to die or cost too much or take too long. But you've gotten some things done cited just in your bio, DHS. Tell us about what you've done recently. Well, thank you. I think there are folks who know me really well who would probably characterize me as lacking in any semblance of patience. I have been committed to the DHS mission since leaving the Marine Corps. And frankly, It's hard not to just want to do and do anything and everything possible to serve this mission more effectively and more efficiently. So when I got up to the department, it was really an an interesting career shift for me going from, I've been out in the field, I've been working directly with operators for my entire life. And then to get to a headquarters entity, you sort of go, okay, I have to shift how I'm thinking about how I serve the mission And what are the broader impacts? What are the things that I can do up here that will really make a difference across the board? Not for a single component, but for all the components. Well, first and foremost was the the wide area network and modernizing that transport mechanism because it serves the entire department. And frankly, all of the wonderful new technology whiz-bang tools aren't very useful if the person out at the edge in the field can't get to them. 
So my first focus was getting that wide area network stabilized and modernized. And of course, that happened right at the same time that we are transitioning the major contract, the EIS Enterprise uh, Infrastructure Services contract. Right. I wanted to ask you separately about that, too, because but just to get back to the idea of the enterprise network, it's more Mm -hmm. than just a technical thing. Because the major challenge of DHS since its inception has been to become an integrated agency. That's such a great point. And I think cohesion has been a hallmark of the last three years during this administration. There's been a real emphasis on putting together the tools and the mechanisms that will allow for better collaboration across the components. You know, we came together with disparate mission sets, disparate funding streams, and it's all kinds of mechanisms there. And so getting the technology in place and modernized to where the components can leverage it to collaborate and to enhance cohesion has been really important. And I think we've been very successful. And you did get, as you said, DHS to switch from the GSA Old Network's legacy contract to EIS. And everyone's supposed to do that. But I think what's interesting is only half the agencies actually have way past the deadline. So what did that take? That should be a poster child for what everyone's supposed to do here. Yeah, frankly, I mentioned earlier, I don't have a lot of patience. That one's been a stickler because I think, you know, if you start with just the notion of trying to transition the entire civilian federal government at the same time, their networks, I think it sounds good in theory. You get economies of scale, you get these large contracts in place that everybody can use, but the practicality, the reality of actually executing those transitions, right, while you're trying to modernize, while you're trying to update your environments, and everybody is trying to access the same resources at the same time, in hindsight, probably not the best approach. And I've talked with GSA about this extensively and given some recommendations on what maybe they could consider the next time around, because I think all of us have struggled and particularly the large agencies, we're competing with one another, right? And there's only so much, you know, it's easy to say, well, the vendors aren't meeting, you know, contractual obligations. And, but in fairness to them, this was a lot of work at one time. And then, Obviously, we all got hampered by COVID, which impacted everyone's ability to meet those transition goals. And so um, I think it was a, a perfect storm of challenges, but I am very hopeful right now. Everybody is on the right trajectory to get transitioned. And I really appreciate the partnership, both across the federal government. I, you know, I've worked extensively with DOJ as well on this and with the vendor community to meet those goals. It's a lot of work. We're speaking with Beth Capello. She's Deputy Chief Information Officer at DHS and also a winner of a Presidential Rank Award this year. And let's go back in history a little bit. You mentioned after joining the federal civilian part of government after leaving the Marine Corps. What in the Marine Corps did you gain in terms of the ability to get things done and lead people in other contexts than the Marine Corps? So I think... Anyone who has served in the military, and especially in my Marine Corps, will tell you that at a very young age, you are given high levels of responsibility. I was a supervisor, a non-commissioned officer and an NCO at 19 years old. And so you're leading people 
and you're responsible for everything. You're responsible for ensuring not only that the work gets done, but that they show up for work, that they're paying their bills on time, that they're caring for themselves physically, emotionally, managing their careers. So I think that level of responsibility for people at a young age carries over into everything else you do. Because frankly, look, as leaders, we're not doing the work. It's the workforce. It's the people around us. It's our teams who are getting things done. And caring for those teams, caring for those people, knowing their strengths, knowing your own strengths and weaknesses these are all leadership traits that are taught from the beginning in the military. And in the Marine Corps, you're expected to be a leader from day one. And when you don't have the, say, command and control authority that you do in the military when you're in a non-military setting, how do you then project that idea that what happens outside of the workplace but yet affects the workplace, such as people's personal comportment and their ability to keep up with their bills and these kinds of things, because they can spill back into the workplace. How do you project that caring when legally it's none of your business, but yet you do care and you want the work to get done and you care about the people themselves? Sure. You know, one of the things about being part of a large law enforcement organization, as you mentioned, I went from the Marine Corps to the Legacy U.S. Customs Service. I worked extensively with Immigration and Customs Enforcement and also Customs and Border Protection with the uh, U.S. Border Patrol. One of the things about working with law enforcement is that idea of caring for people is part of the culture within the law enforcement community as well. DHS has some wonderful employee assistance programs. We're encouraged to care about our employees. And look, when you're managing the work and supporting the mission, if you're seeing behaviors or activities that are impacting the ability to serve the mission, then as a supervisor, as a leader, as a manager, your job is to talk with the employee and try to understand how you can help them be successful. And you can do that without you know, getting too far in the weeds with their personal issues, but recommending resources that are available to all employees. But that's paying attention. It's paying attention. It's knowing your people. It's understanding when behavior is anomalous and when you start to see things that don't quite make sense. So first and foremost, know yourself, know your people. And for someone who might be moving from the non-supervisory ranks up to the supervisory ranks and eventually perhaps on to the senior executive service, as you have achieved, what's your best advice for people that have been doing? Because it's not necessarily the same challenge as when you're not doing, but rather managing and supervising. What is the expression what got you here may not get you there. <laughs> and you know what? That's a very important phrase because... And by the way, that's not original. That's that's from <laughs> Bill Toti, a well-known naval officer yes. who you know coined that in a book about his transition and what got him high in the military wasn't necessarily a recipe for success in the business world. And I think you point out a very valuable technique that all leaders should follow, and that's continuous learning right? You read books, you, you look to models, you look to others' experiences. And one of the things that I think, particularly that transition from non-supervisors, especially in the technical arena, you know, you're very technical, you got promoted because you understand the technology, you're delivering against the technology. Now somebody says, but your primary responsibility is going to be for people. Those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand, being super technical and being a leader of people. So 
learn, grow, continuous improvement. And I would also say, start with recognizing that if you're going to make that transition into a supervisory or management or executive role, that you are shifting your focus and your focus does need to be on the people because none of us is successful without those teams. So that would be my number one thing is to recognize it's a, it's a responsibility. Beth Capello is Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Homeland Security Department and a winner of a Presidential Rank Award this year. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege. And uh, thank you for allowing me to highlight the wonderful things that we do at the Department of Homeland Security. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow in our Rank series, the point person for STEM education at the National Science Foundation, Sylvia Butterfield. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when you leave service and national security, you can't just go to work anywhere. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. National security eyebrows shot up last month when a former FBI counterintelligence special agent received a four-year prison sentence. Why? He'd gone to work for a Russian oligarch, a sanctioned oligarch, no less. Robert McGonigal had headed the New York field office for counterintelligence. For some of the lessons everyone with clearance should take away from this, we turn to attorney Dan Meyer, managing partner at Tully Rinke. Dan, good to have you back. Tom, glad to be here. Happy New Year. And this fellow had retired from the FBI, correct, and then went to work for this oligarch? Is that the sequence of events here? Yes. This is one of those instances where a former federal official did not become a retired annuitant and come back and work for the federal government, which many people do, but decided to take his uh, expertise that he learned uh, in the federal government and use it against the United States. So I guess then the main lesson here is even if you've had clearance and you have left the government, you just can't go to work for anybody. Yes. What he violated in the U.S. Code in Title 50 was the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of uh, 1977. So this was not a security clearance violation. This was a criminal act where he basically betrayed the United States by working with our enemies. And if you work for the government in any capacity the first time you join or periodically, do you get reminders of that kind of prohibition? By the way, you can't do this when you've been an employee for the government or nobody can work for a Russian oligarch. Well, what happens is this. You work for the federal government for many years and you don't understand the type of advice and counsel that private executives get all the time. Because, you know, you have a pretty good setup in a federal agency. There's a general counsel and deputy general counsels and assistant general counsels. And everything you do as a Fed is screened for you and you don't have to think about the compliance issues. Then you go out on your own and all of a sudden you're setting up your own uh, system and you need to go out and get advice. And if he got advice, he ignored it. If he didn't get advice, that was a very, uh, well, it was a bad decision on his part. This could fall into two different categories. One, you're just ignorant and, oh, that seems like a nice guy, lots of herring and, you know, maybe exotic travel. And then there's those that know exactly what they're doing and they somehow maybe feel that's a way to get revenge on what they felt might have been a stilted career or something and going to work for someone prohibited. 
Well, you're on to a really important point there. When I used to advise internal affairs for the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, I worked for a, a senior executive who was a former Secret Service agent, and he gave me some great insights into law enforcement, and this was law enforcement that he was in, and that when you work so close to the line in assessing other people's actions and following the rules, you can get a little too comfortable with your own compliance. Law enforcement personnel often call this bad head work. And I think that may have been what happened here is that he had spent many years, you know, reviewing cases, bringing materials forward so that prosecutors could go after spies. And he started to feel very comfortable in an environment. And there is a tendency at that point then to substitute your judgment for the rule of law. And this is not a unique situation, Tom. It's been happening all across the board in Washington uh, for well over a decade. I think it's on the rise because you've got a global marketplace and public knowledge and information gained as a public service can be commodified and can be banked on. And people go out and they try to make money. And if I had been him, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, uh, I would have gotten counsel. But even then, I can tell you as an attorney, there are lots of clients who will get counsel and still decide to go ahead and break the law. We're speaking with Dan Meyer. He's managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. And the McGonagall case is a case of someone having left the government and going and doing this. But then there are those, and these pop up with sort of dreary regularity, going back to the Hansen case, some of the, back to the 1970s. And that is people who, while they are working long term for the government, are actually double agents. The latest one was Manuel Roca. You know, he'll go to jail probably for the rest of his life for aiding and abetting Cuba as a double agent for many, many years, 40 years. You know, part of this is our squeamishness with actually using the treason laws. It really was disturbing that case. And, you know, that strikes to the heart of our decision making process. And those cases happen with enough frequency that it's a reminder that for all the frustration our security clearance process causes, and many people really chafe under the requirements of having a security clearance. The whole process is there to try to find these people and get them out before they can do damage. And, you know, I applaud the prosecution going forward. Uh, but what really needs to be uh, done, and I, and I think the Congress is the, the body to do this, is somebody's got to burrow in and find out why this guy who had high clearances uh, was able to operate so long without effective scrutiny. You know, my frustration at times is that the sort of flash in the pan media cases, the reality winners and and such, uh, people who are lower ranked, they, they don't seem to get a break, okay? Whereas people senior, higher up do get breaks. And there, there's a frustration in that. It seems to be if you're powerful, if you're well-placed, somehow there's a double standard and and that can really endanger the republic. Yeah, so he's going to probably end up, that is to say, Roca will end up in the Supermax and he can trade spy stories with Robert Hansen, who's spending the rest of his life out there. Well, his case will go into the archives. You remember Hansen was during the year of the spies, 1985, where the you know KGB just picked our pockets. They made us look like buffoons. And, you know, we, we were losing the Cold War in terms of spycraft because they successfully got a whole bunch of people, the uh, Aldra James, Anna Montez, using the Cubans to get her in over a DIA. So all of our informed understanding of people's reliability 
really comes out in 1985. In his case, I'm predicting will be studied in the various places where uh, they do the policy for security clearance processing to see where we went wrong. And, and it may be that we even see amendments to the adjudicative guidelines based on that experience. Because every rule you're held to as a federal worker, a service member, or a contractor is rooted back to some instance where somebody picked our pocket and took our stuff. And it's all empirical. It's all based on what we know about people's behaviors based on the failures in the past. And you know what people chafe at is that they, they don't want to be held to the standard or they think it doesn't apply to them. But, you know, the bottom line, when you're put under a lot of pressure, people will do some very strange things. And this was a classic case of it. Yes. Do we know of any behaviors that managers can look out for that might indicate someone is doing this? I mean, in the case of Hansen, I think he brought the secrets in paper bags or something and stuck them under a lamppost or a bridge in a park. Kind of odd, but that was maybe before the Internet was so ubiquitous <laughs> and we had the dark web or whatever. But do managers well, ever get briefed in that kind of thing? Hey, look at this behavior. Well, the behavior you want to focus on, that's actually in trying to you know, find the behavior that leads to the case. That, that's for the gumshoes to do it down, and, and you know, they're okay with it. Our counterintelligence infrastructure struggles at times in that, in that work because I don't think they get enough resources. Uh, the critical thing, though, on the behavior is what drives people to do this? What drives people to betray the country? You know, in, in some of the cases in the 80s, it was financial. People, you know, were frustrated living on government salaries and they wanted to buy a fancy car or, or have a vacation home somewhere. Uh, so there was envy, you know, at a, you know, a prosperous economy where people in the private sectors were making more. So financial, you know, we understand that under Guideline F. We can uh, look at people's credit reports. We can look at other publicly available information. Uh, we can look at gambling records. Those are all subject to the algorithms now under continuous monitoring. But when you get into the foreign contacts, it gets really, really interesting. So we have a global economy. We have to be able to operate with connections worldwide. So we value those connections in many cases. So how do you value the connections but still filter out those cases where foreign influence or foreign preference may be operating? And this has been very difficult in the post-9-11 period because we reached out to a lot of Near Eastern people, came in, they became Americans, they did great work for us during 9-11. And now that we're on the downside of those wars, well, they're over, everybody's scratching their heads wondering, well, are all these people reliable? And so then you have to go back and you have to look at their contacts, you have to look at who's got associations with what individuals, and it's very, very difficult work. It's getting easier to do with artificial intelligence because a lot can be hoovered off of the internet and you can sift through things. But in the end, it, it's really an asymmetrical warfare situation. You have to win every battle uh, and all the enemy has to do is get one person to crack and give you the goods. And, and that's why it gets tough. Dan Meyer is managing partner at the law firm Tully Rinky. As always, thanks so much. Okay, thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency has been a self-declared leader in federal efforts to use what's known as neurodiverse talent. 
Neurodiversity is an umbrella term for brain functions like autism, dyslexia or attention deficit, and hyperactivity disorders. Well, now, NGA plans to build on its pilot program for hiring such individuals. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the program manager for neurodiversity at the NGA, Jen King. In December of 2020, NGA had a great collaboration with MITRE, a federally funded research and development center, to launch a neurodiversity federal workforce pilot at NGA, where we recruited neurodivergent individuals. Specifically, we were looking for those that were on the autism spectrum. We had a number of really great qualified applicants that had come on board that were really interested in, you know, learning more about the pilot, learning more about the program. And so what we did is we had very specific requirements, ensuring that, you know, they had academics. So you have to have a bachelor's degree, getting the security clearance, the drug screening, and all the other processes that go on with becoming uh, an NGA employee. We did not waive those. And so what we did is we conducted this pilot. It ran from December 2020 until June of 2021. And upon successful completion for those that were selected to participate in the pilot, they were, you know, received formal offers of employment to come and work at NGA. And so we had a lot of really great lessons learned from that pilot and we're still learning. So in addition to having this pilot, we also uh, discovered that we have an existing neurodivergent population within the organization. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But where we are is, you know, we've had a lot of lessons learned from that pilot and we're still learning. We are getting a lot of uh, really great data points from those that are already existing within the workforce uh, and from those that were part of our initial pilot and those have been onboarding since. And while we will not be repeating our pilot, we will be putting structures in place for future neurodivergent cohorts getting to the process of where our neurodivergent employees are coming in through NGA's existing people with disabilities programs. And so some would ask, you know, it's about, you know, two, two and a half years since we had conducted our pilot. Why did we, you know, appear to have a stoppage? Why did we appear to lose momentum? And, you know, quite honestly, we didn't lose momentum. What we did is we wanted to take a step back, take a look at all the data, because at NGA we are very much about data and about doing no harm. And so we wanted to evaluate all of the areas uh, that we had experienced during the pilot to determine where we were successful for our new teammates, where we can improve, and where we can continue to support individuals in their career. And tell us a little bit more about what went into that strategic pause. So we took that bit of a pause, a strategic pause, to ensure that we were doing things right. We were listening to the employees. We were listening to the supervisors. We were listening to our our support staff. We wanted to make sure that we were deliberate in what we were doing. And we really didn't want to rush through this in any form or fashion because we understand how important this is. So we have been reaching out to our neurodivergent workforce uh, that's been around for 20, 30 or more years because we wanted to make sure that they didn't feel invisible and to take lessons learned from their experiences, you know, before we had started talking about neurodiversity because neurodiversity really isn't a new thing. It's a, I wouldn't say even a new concept. We're just focusing on it a bit more. And over the past two years, what we have done within the organization is to create neurodiversity training for our, you know, senior executives, supervisors, workforce levels, um, discussing neurodivergent conditions, terminology, accommodations, creating a new employee checklist. We have a lot of 
really great drafts and documents that we're working on. And we are looking at hosting a new cohort and that will probably uh, happen later in the later portion of this FY. So we are exploring what would it look like to go from four to six individuals. And we're looking at exploring that cohort between NGA's two primary locations at NGA St. Louis, Missouri and NGA Springfield, Virginia. And so we do have a lot of neurodivergent talent and a lot of talent in our pipelines for our people with disabilities program. And what we are looking to do is find a way to identify neurodivergent talent and be able to bring them into what we're eventually going to call the ADEPT program. So with us, ADEPT is Accessing Diversity to Employ Professional Talent. It's the name that NGA has chosen for our program for recruiting our neurodivergent talent and for what our program is really going to look like. And so our goal is to mature ADEPT to include neurodiverse individuals more effectively through all aspects of their career by providing support. So we're looking at, I would say, a function from recruitment all the way through the hiring process into the onboarding process within the organization that is going to take us to, you know, what does it look like for career development? What new training do, do they want to do? Um, we are not limiting in any form or fashion any of the careers that individuals with an NGA can pursue, and nor should we. Neurodivergent talent is out there, and there it's a spectrum for a reason. There are those that you know are all over the spectrum within the organization. So, what we are looking to do is seek the opportunities to come in as a pay band two or GS eight equivalent, and then be able to come up to a GS fifteen or pay band five, or even into the SES services. Thank you for that overview. That's really helpful to know, and it sounds as if NGA is really building on its initial pilot program here. You mentioned, you know, you want to put the structures in place to really to acknowledge different neurodiverse people during the recruiting uh, all the way through the retention process. Can you talk a little bit about what those structures are? So in an interview, and as we're uh, looking towards onboarding folks for interviews, individuals may or may not engage in full-on eye contact. So they may look down, uh, they may look up, they may not speak, they may be, I wouldn't say complete nonverbal, but they may engage in selective mutism. And so some of those structures are when our you know awesome hiring team goes out and they're handing out pamphlets to be able to look and know that, you know, there are going to be certain individuals that will not make eye contact with you to educate them, but also uh, for hiring managers, if people are onboarding, to let them know. And we, so we train our hiring managers. We are training our security staff that will be running the background investigations. We ensure that uh, everyone is aware that, you know, there may be behaviors that are a little bit different, and that's okay. Jen King, program manager for the Neurodiversity Program at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. There's much more to the interview. To hear it in its entirety, tune in to Inside the IC today at 2 here on Federal News Network. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.